Have you ever wondered how a company is able to offer unlimited time off or be a pet-friendly office? Curious how HR leaders manage the well-being of remote or essential workforces? If so, you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Andrea Heron, Head of People for WebMD Health Services, and I'd like to welcome you to the HR Scoop. On this podcast, I talk with other HR leaders to explore the world of unique employee benefits and about the challenges of managing unique workforces, because well-being isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. On this special episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Ron Getzel. Among his many distinguished credentials, including comedian and radio host, he is currently a senior scientist and director of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and he joins me here to explore the evolution of employee well-being and the secret to providing a successful well-being program. Welcome, everyone. I am so happy to have Dr. Getzel here today with us. He is a senior scientist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and also the director of the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies. So welcome to the podcast. Hello, Andrea. How are you? You can, by the way, call me Ron. I only ask my family members to call me Dr. Getzel. That's <laughs> How very kind. Yes. Okay. Well, welcome, Ron. We are thrilled to have you and all of the expertise that you have. I am very excited to share with our listeners. Mm-hmm. Great. So to get started, if um, you wouldn't mind, we'd love to hear a little bit about your career journey and how you got interested or involved in the well-being industry. Okay, uh, I was reflecting upon that the other day, and uh, actually, I had remembered that in grade school, when they asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up, um, they gave you two two lines, two ideas, and I said I wanted to be a scientist, and I also wanted to be a comedian, and. Turns out my title at Johns Hopkins is senior scientist, so I achieved that. And in terms of comedian, I do try to inject humor in everything that I do, whether it's uh, uh, teaching, presentations, uh, training programs, working with staff, and so forth, to keep it light, keep it fun, keep it happy. So um, I think to a lot of, lot of large extent, uh, I've achieved that. So that goes back to grade school. I won't go that far back, uh, back, uh, in the 1920, in the 1920s now, in the 1970s, I was growing up in New York city and, um, was taking courses in psychology, applied psychology and community psychology. And I said, what I really want to do is become a change agent. Uh, and at that time that wasn't kind of a clear idea, but it was to change policies, to make communities more livable, um, and I, I began to work with the mayor's office at the time. And New York, by the way, at that time was really a horrible place to be. It was dirty. It was crime-ridden. It was totally inefficient. Everybody was unhappy. Um, but started working with daycare centers and housing and police departments and all that, all the kind of stuff that you should be doing uh, to improve communities. In fact, I, I worked at a neighborhood mental health center that was developed by the community, run by the community. And that gave me really firsthand knowledge and view of what the problems are, both at the individual level and also the system level, and prepared me for kind of, I think, where I was headed down the road. Um, I continued work in 
the public sector with mental health centers and worked for some time at a medical school, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, and, and also a, a community uh, center. But then one day, a friend of mine, uh, who was an anthropologist, said, Ron, you know, we're starting this new company in New Haven, a startup company, uh, a bunch of very, very smart people. And what they do is they take insurance data and organize it by something called a DRG, which is a diagnosis-related group, methodology developed at Yale. And what that does is take all of the healthcare utilization and cost data and put it into some discrete buckets. And that way you can begin to compare, you know, how you're doing versus everybody else in a manageable way. And I said, okay, sounds good. Uh, I'll try that out. And so, uh, and I hated the job I was doing. So I um, started working uh, on a Friday. And then by the following week, I was, uh, through no fault of my own, became the marketing director for this company. I knew nothing <laughs> about marketing. I knew nothing about anything, really. Maybe it was your humor. Yeah. I mean, I had actually given them a, a tape of, of I, I used to do a radio show in New York and gave them a tape of that. And they said, all right, that sounds pretty good. Um, and then went around the country selling these data analytic projects. Um, and what was interesting was the product was so good, in spite of the fact that I was so bad at marketing and sales, it, it sold. It actually, uh, people liked it a lot. People were using it and the, and the company grew and, and leaps and uh, leaps and frogs and jumps. And, 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 and so it really moved along very quickly. Um, and I, it, was, it got to be so big um, that uh, and it got sold to another company that I decided, well, maybe this is not the right place to me because for me, this became a little bit of a uh, more of an organizational, bureaucratic, administrative burden. And I was recruited by Johnson & Johnson. So this was in the mid middle of the 1980s, and they were starting a new company called Johnson & Johnson Health Management, which was a health promotion company that would take the J&J program, which was called Live for Life, and distribute it, disseminate it to other uh, companies, other employers around the country, you know, in, in all kinds of sectors. And I was in charge of their data analysis, analytics, research, uh, had some really, really smart people I worked with there. And we developed a whole lot of useful techniques and began really pouring out a lot of publications out of our program to basically look uh, at these workplace programs to see how they work, why they work, when they work, and so forth. Um, and that was a wonderful experience. And I'm, we're still still working, still partnering with Johnson & Johnson after all these years. Uh, and then in the mid-90s, I joined a company called Medstat, which then was became Thomson Reuters, which then became Truman Health Analytics, which then became IBM Watson Health. But at the same time, I wanted to have a, an affiliation with the university, an academic affiliation, because I knew there were a lot, a lot of smart people in academia, and the business world had very immediate problems, and why not combine uh, the, the smarts of academia, the smarts of business, but have them make more informed decisions, evidence-based decisions. So started the Institute for Health and Productivity Studies at Cornell, uh, worked there for many years, uh, moved it to Emory University, and then most recently, uh, the last seven years or so at uh, Johns Hopkins, where I've got a team and we do some really amazing work. But the idea is to bridge the gap between the business world and academia. And then most, most recently, 
the policy world and the organizations out there all over America that are in government, public health agencies and departments that really need to work on improving the health and well-being of communities. So asking how can employers help in that endeavor? So that was, that's a short synopsis of about 50 years. <laughs> You have seen so much change and been, it sounds like, very visionary in helping bring together things that may seem disparate at first, but actually go hand in hand. And the amount of health and data information that we have now and that we utilize when we're thinking about wellness and health plans, it's so important. And it's, you know, it's good to hear how some of it came to be. Yeah, I mean, I we... In this country, everybody knows we've got a lot of health problems, and it's not health care, which is what the government always tries to deal with, which is really moving money around. Who's going to get paid by whom and who's going to charge what for what? The problem is health. We're not doing very well on most health metrics, uh, even though we spend about twice as much as anybody else. And there is a great disparity and inequity between people who have access to wonderful health care, uh, and those people who really don't. And the outcomes are very reflective of, of that access. But it's not just health care in the form of treating you when you're sick. It's preventing you from getting sick in the first place. And a lot of that has to do with policies that local, state, and federal governments are in charge of. Absolutely. Yeah, if you can get to the core of the issue, then it never becomes quite the same level of an issue later. Mm-hmm. Right. So one group I think that we often, I don't say overlook, but they just don't seem to get the same level of attention when we're talking in conversations like this is the senior group. So from a well-being program perspective or, you know, your perspective about programs, you know, where do those fall short of supporting seniors? Well, I mean, first you need to realize that people's habits and health uh, is formed actually prenatally, you know, before they're even born. So, you you know, how the mother eats and whether she drinks or whether she smokes and whether, you know, she has a healthy lifestyle obviously determines the, uh, the baby and, and how healthy the baby is. But then you've got a whole lifetime that you either develop and accrue good health habits or bad health habits. Um, And by the time you get to senior stage, (laughs) you know, a lot of people have very bad habits uh, and and a lot, a lot of risk factors and oftentimes disease. Um, You know, we we work with uh, Medicare uh, back in the early 2000s where our focus was on prevention and health promotion. And uh, we designed and implemented a demonstration called Senior Risk Reduction Demonstration. And the idea behind that was it's never too late. It's never too late to improve the health and well-being of seniors, uh, even if they start living healthy at age 65 when they enter Medicare. But, you know, better yet, how about 55? How about uh, pre-Medicare? It has an enormous impact on their health their well-being, the amount of disability they have before they die, because inevitably we all die, and healthcare utilization and costs. It turned out that a lot of a lot of research has shown that if you lead a healthy lifestyle, you live longer, but you don't actually cost Medicare more money because you're living a healthier life. 
So all of the things that we advocate for non-seniors, uh, actually, uh, these things do apply for seniors. And what our demonstration showed, we actually conducted a randomized trial. Um, you can improve health on many, many dimensions and do it in a cost-neutral way. That makes sense. And it's like once you get into those good habits, if you can maintain them, it's better for you and your family. And I know over the past year, maybe even more so than other times, that sandwich generation has really taken on the brunt of care for both children and sometimes older parents, you know, with all the job insecurity and housing and, you know, people losing work last year, a lot of families consolidated into closer cohabitating or just being able to be there for their parents because the other services for support weren't available. So I think we can all kind of have a little bit more appreciation for the impact that good health makes in all phases of life. Absolutely. And, you know, certainly, uh, as you point out, the the last year and a half or so have really tested our ability to be resilient, you know, both in work life and family life, which, of course, intermingle way way too much. Uh, So if you're caring for your kids and you have to care for the household and you have to care about your career and so forth, that's an enormous stress and burden, especially on women uh, who I think uh, have lost the most in terms of their career progression because uh, many of them have had to take time off to take care of families. Uh, so that has been a, a, a big challenge. Uh, but if you set up routines for both you and family members and you kind of don't interfere into each other's space, and uh, but you have meals together, you exercise together, you do all those things together, you know, there's, there's the ability to manage and control it a little bit better. But, you know, I don't want to underscore the, 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 the harsh stress and, and what every one of us has been going through for the last year and a half. Thankfully, we're beginning to emerge out of it, but it's been uh, a a very bad episode of The Twilight Zone. (laughs) Yes, that is, that seems appropriate. It has been a little twilighty. And on that topic, you know, we have seen the connection between employer and community change in the last year because, you know, historically businesses haven't had to I don't want to say care as much, but they haven't had to be as involved in public health as much as they have in the past year with their own employees, consumers, customers, you know. So have you seen from your research or just your experience businesses thrive or any cautionary tales about how people have interacted with the first time maybe really getting into caring and working with and around public health issues? Well, I think the, this pandemic has brought to the surface the uh, very intimate connection that health and well-being of the, the, the population uh, has and the economy. Uh, you know, past depressions, recessions have all been basically financial in nature. Uh, but here what happened was this, this bug, this virus, all of a sudden infected and influenced all of us in some form or fashion, and it very much influenced the economy and businesses. And so, obviously, a lot of people became unemployed, a lot of businesses closed, became bankrupt. Um, and, uh, you know, we were in a panic state. So, I think the business community looked at this and said, you know, we ought to have a much better infrastructure in place to protect us against these kinds of bad hap- things happening. Um, you know, their, their first 
their, their first priority, of course, was to uh, put out the fire of COVID-19 and to do it in a trustworthy way with their own employees uh, to make sure that their employees follow guidelines, credible guidelines. The problem was that we had so many different messages, so trustworthiness was, was a big issue. Uh, but get, get the, the workers themselves to deal with COVID-19 and do it in, you know, in the safe way of, of testing and tracing and social isolation um, and uh, ultimately vaccination. But then secondly, they said, well, you know, this is not the last illness that we're facing. We, we have pandemics all over the place. Uh, we have an obesity pandemic. We have a diabetes pandemic, heart disease, depression. The list goes on and on. And in fact, you know, probably 95 percent of all Americans have some kind of health issue, whether it's a risk factor or a disease. So, you know, thinking that you're out of the woods with COVID-19, you're now in the woods with all of these other risk factors and diseases. So take care of your own workers, do it in an evidence-based way. And that's really the main focus of what MD and, and other organizations like it do. How do you get your employees and their families to be healthy? But then, yeah, look at your community. Uh, is it safe? Does it have good housing? Does it have a good economy? What about education? Uh, what about crime? What about transportation systems, other infrastructure? You know, those things really, really matter because people leave their home, they go out, and if they feel unsafe or there is no parkland or there's no food to eat that's healthy, you know, all those things really, really matter. Um, and so uh, many, many more businesses are beginning to think about how they can partner with public health agencies and work on common common issues. Yeah, I've heard that bubbling up more in the recent few months as people start to make transition back to a physical location because those are real concerns and the anxiety that people feel about changing their routine and reemerging from this quarantine where they were isolated and now not feeling safe doing things like riding the subway or taking a rideshare service and employers are having to step in in ways that they just haven't had to even think about before. And so that's been really interesting to watch in real time. Yeah, I think employers really are very, very focused on things that they didn't care about before as much. <laughs> um, I mean, they, they were very uh, focused on healthcare costs. How do we you know, keep those costs low because uh, that's driving uh, our business. But now I think they're beginning to look upstream and say, well, the costs are there because people are sick. How do they get sick in the first place? And can we do something about that? Can we get people to be less sick? Um, by the way, it's very, very, very hard, as you well know, to change population health, to get people to all of a sudden uh, begin to do things that they haven't done before. You know, things I mentioned earlier, eat healthy, exercise, stop smoking, manage stress, you know, uh, spend more social time with people and so forth. If that's not part of their routine, part of their habit, it's hard to do that, which is why all of us are in a very uh, complicated and challenging business to get populations to, to improve, not just individuals, but whole segments of populations, including employees. So to do that effectively, uh, you have to have a pretty interesting, exciting, engaging, and, and forward-thinking and scientifically-based program to do that. Just having brochures in the waiting room uh, is not enough. 
You're exactly right. If people aren't excited or at least interested or see the connection of how it benefits them directly, there's really no incentive for them to participate because we all know we should eat vegetables and not the cookie. But man, that cookie tastes pretty good. <laughs> so I think another another thing that you touched on, which I think is really important, is the trust that we of a, we as a society have in science and professionals. So in your opinion, you know, how do we regain trust in a divided population and culture? And from your experience, you know, how do we help those who have a lack of trust? It's very, very hard because unfortunately, over the last few years, uh, we have decided that we're teams. You know, you're in this camp versus that camp, this tribe versus that tribe, this political affiliation versus that. And not a whole lot of thinking going on, uh, but on your own, basically deciding uh, on the basis of your own merits what, what, uh, what, is, what is right for you and what's not right for you. I think more conversation, more engagement uh, between people who may differ in their opinions is important. You know, I reflect back when I was in school, we had debate clubs. Um, and what was really interesting about those clubs was that you were randomly assigned a position. So, you know, whatever the position is, you were said, well, you're for it, you're against it. And you had to prepare uh, to essentially articulate that position, argue that position. Um, and that kind of made you aware as to, oh, well, that's, that's what they think. <laughs> okay. I, I think we need more of that kind of dialogue where people uh, are genuinely interested and listening in other points of view and looking for common ground. Now, where does that apply in terms of trust? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I think we live in bubble worlds, you know, so some people always listen to this radio station and that TV station and others, the other and then you know, this Twitter account and so forth. Uh, there has to be, there have to be probably at the local community level, uh, opportunities for groups to get together and, and share uh, common interests, you know, whether it's gardening or cooking or basket weaving or whatever, but also begin to engage with one another in human conversations about larger issues and, you know, have discussions and debates, not shutdowns, let's say, <laughs> uh, where, where you can really uh, relate to what the other person is saying and do that um, at the institutional level. So, you know, the people who run governments, you know, whether they're mayors or county executives or, you know, legislators, et cetera, have them begin to articulate the broad range of views. And, and I won't get into it, but I think a way in which we do voting is one way of, of getting to that. Yeah, it is harder and harder, it seems, with every passing you know, social media platform that comes online to not stay in a bubble. And one thing that I have at least tried to, you know, train, expose, recommend to staff and, well, anyone who'll listen, really, is to expose yourself to things you don't normally listen to. Maybe listen to a different radio station or try a different kind of takeout. Listen to a different kind of music. Talk to someone intentionally with a different perspective and remain curious instead of letting yourself go to a defensive place because then you shut down and you can't really absorb what they're saying. And, you know, as much as we can do that, it just it goes so far because otherwise you see a very curated experience 
And then you lose track of the other side of the coin. And there are always two sides, obviously. I mean, that's why everyone has their own unique perspective and opinion. And it's not that they're trying to get you personally, but they just see a different set of information. So the more you can expose yourself to that with health, wellness, and just really any topic, I think we'd all be better for it. Uh, there's an old, old truism which says you, you're entitled to your opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Um, so there are, there are things you know, that are judgment calls, basically, that can be talked about and argued and discussed and so forth. But there's some basic scientific facts. I mean, even uh, the COVID-19 crisis, I think, has exposed that, that, you know, as you find out new things in science, you use that information to change your course of action. Uh, and it's not a political position, but, it, you know, here's the fact. Here's what science has shown us. Um, and I, I think we need to regain a trust in evidence and science. You know, we rely upon experts to do all kinds of things, anywhere from fix our transmission to be an electrician, to do plumbing, uh, to um, to do surgery on us. You know, we, we basically say, okay, this person knows that craft, that skill, because he or she studied it and has experienced it. And we need to let other people who are experts in any of these fields basically, you know, state what they know and then use that information as a guide. I completely agree. And it, it just gets harder to differentiate between who is an expert and who just has an opinion. And so it comes back to that personal responsibility of looking at your source of information and, and talking to people that are trusted and reliable first. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and certainly employers play a huge role in that because uh, by and large, employees do listen to their employers when their employers give them guidance or direction. Um, and so employers really bear a huge responsibility to get it right. They do. And so switching gears just a little bit, I'm curious, you know, if you have a perspective on you, know, we've talked about the the employer's role, do you have any examples of best in class or ideas that you've seen work really well for employers to engage their populations to make a real change? Glad you asked me that question. Yes. Um, so one of the things that I've been involved in for the last 20, 25 years, actually, is something called the Health Project. Uh, it's thehealthproject.com. And what that is, is the annual C. Everett Koop Award. Now, for the young people in the audience who don't know who C. Everett Koop is, he was the Surgeon General of the United States during the Ronald Reagan administration in the 1980s. And, you know, it was probably one of the best, uh, best known Surgeon Generals we've ever had. And he started the Koop Award back in the 1990s. And what he wanted to do was to have rigid criteria for the business community to demonstrate with data, with evidence that their programs, their health promotion disease prevention programs that they had worked. And by worked, he meant uh, they improved health and they also had a positive business impact. So it wasn't just, you know, we're gonna get everybody healthy, but actually this is gonna help our business. And so over the years, going back to then, Back in the 1990s, we have given roughly 75 Coop Awards uh, to companies with demonstrated outcomes. And the nice thing about it is you can go to the website and see all their data. You can see all the evidence that their programs have actually worked. And we've got pretty strict judges uh, and criteria for how to demonstrate that your program actually works. 
So there you have real-life examples of companies that have succeeded in convincing the judges uh, that their programs work in terms of health improvement and cost savings. Um, the other thing that we've done over the many years is run uh, benchmarking reports. Um, and that has to do with looking at best practice companies and then going out and visiting them and talking to their senior executives and talking to their employees and, and people who run these programs and learning thematically what is it that they do uh, to have successful programs. And we've, we've come up with a top 10 list, kind of the secret sauce to success. I won't go through all 10, but number one is have a culture of health. And number 10, important, is to measure and demonstrate that your program actually works. So if you have those as bookends and everything in between, you'll have a good program. That's a great tip and sounds like um, a nice data source if anybody is interested to go look at the history of winners and see what they have done that I'm sure is still very relevant, even if it's been a while, because these are human things and we don't like change. So even things that sounded good 10 years ago, probably very relevant. Mm -hmm. Right. Great. Well, before we let you go, I always ask our guests to tell us one thing about themselves that we may not know. So do you have a fun fact for us? Well, I, I kind of alluded to it earlier, but back in the uh, 1970s, I was a radio announcer. Now, this is kind of a funny story. I, I've always been interested in radio. And I went to my college radio station and, you know, kind of got a gig there, but big deal. Uh, but then actually at age 19, walked into a professional radio station and said, you need an engineer. And they said, yeah, you start tomorrow morning at 630. And I said, OK, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I did that for many years and actually did have a nightly FM jazz show in New York uh, at uh, my, my university. And I loved doing it. Uh, and it was a lot, a lot of fun. So uh, I've always been, been interesting broadcasting, uh, broadcast uh, journalism and TV and radio. And uh, it's a lot of fun. But I'm very, very happy doing what I'm doing, which is applied research. Awesome. And you still get to live out the dream by being on this podcast. So That's thank you right. so much for I'm your time. I'm a podcaster time. as well now. Science, <laughs> media, and broadcaster. Okay, I got it. Yeah, we'll put it right up there with all your other credentials. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again for joining us. It was a great conversation and uh, such wonderful information. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrea, for inviting me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the HR Scoop podcast. Please take a moment to rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or directly at webmdhealthservices.com slash podcasts. 